He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back, folks. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your co-host, Jack Heald. Phil, I think this is a first in a number of ways. Tell us about our guest and let's get this party started. Definitely. Really uh, excited and honored to have Dr. Roshani Sangani joining us from uh, India. So uh, our first first, uh, guest from India uh, and also our first endocrinologist. And uh, just to set the uh, the background for uh, the non-professionals in the audience, which I think is most of our audience, uh, endocrinologists are doctors that specialize in hormones and um, most commonly diabetes. Uh, and uh, Roshani is an amazing endocrinologist who uh, is taking a little bit of a different approach uh, that I'm excited to uh, discuss with her. Uh, but uh, before we get into it, uh, why don't you give a little bit of your background uh, to the audience, uh, Roshani? Well, thanks, Phil. Um, thanks uh, for having me on, uh, Jack. It's so good to be here. Um, and yes, although I'm logged in from India, I've sort of had an international ride. And I've, I'm so lucky about that is, you know, I was born in the States and people ask me about that is you're from India and you don't have the accent. And I'm like, I actually have two accents, depending on who I'm talking to. (laughs) Um, And I spent my first 10 years of life in Chicago. And then we, my family moved. And as as a child, I came to India and spent the next uh, 13 years here in India and finished med school. And then after MBBS, what we call med school in India, I again took off back to Chicago, where I did another 10 year stint which include, included residency and endocrinology fellowship, some private practice. And then in 2011, we made one more international move back to India. So it's been India since 2011 now, and uh, it's been fun so far. All right. And so um, oh, uh, since your return to India, you know, you've been in practice uh, in endocrinology and um, talk to us about uh, sort of what you've seen there. Uh, give us the lay of the land. I think people are very familiar with the metabolic health and the diabetes epidemic that we have going on here in the U.S. Uh, what are things like in India? Yes, sadly, uh, similar or maybe even worse. You know, we hear this sentence a lot that India is the diabetes capital of the world. You don't hear India is the obesity capital of the world. And there's a reason for that is the Indian body type comes under what we say the South Asian, which is the there's there's some reason why we cannot tolerate obesity as well. So we get sicker faster. So if we start gaining weight, if you have a Caucasian person gaining weight, you have a person of Indian origin gaining weight around the waistline, especially around the belly, the Indian person is just genetically and statistically likely to get diabetes or cardiac disease faster. We think, you know, yeah. And I've spoken to some experts about this. You know, we think that there's some thrifty gene, you know, you think about India, a large part of India is in a warm place. 
So we always had food availability. We didn't go through cold stretches where there were snowy, icy winters, where we didn't have access to fresh, you know, hunting and gathering opportunities. But it was always amply available. So you didn't need to carry around fat for your for your daily routine. And so maybe now with this nutritional processed food, you know, tsunami that's hit everybody around the world, and we're we're copying the West, we're we're doing that. Um, it's we're doing our own sort of fast food, high high carb, you know, transition. And so you do see a, a massive uptick where, you know, if you do, they've done spot checks and about they've seen numbers like one in three with prediabetes. And India's population recently overtook China. So this is not a good number. It's it's a huge, huge number. And maybe I'll add a little bit of my backstory here is when I moved in 2011, coming back, I knew that I had been out of the country as a professional for 10 years. So I didn't want this gap between me and my patient. So in the US, the way we practiced was as the endocrinologist, we talk to the patient, we assess them, we write our prescriptions, medications, et cetera, look at the blood reports, tell them when to come back. And then we may say, go see the diabetes educator. So a large part of what I focus on in endocrinology is anything to do with hormone imbalance, metabolic or insulin resistance. So diabetes is a big part of that. So we would say, go see the educator. And then the patient would go with that folder and make an appointment and get some sort of education. And I had no access to what they were talking about. So I was like, this works, but I want to sit in on that. I was having some FOMO is what's the amazing stuff that's happening there with patient education. I should probably arm myself with that since I'm about to go practice in a foreign country in a way, even though my roots are Indian, I had never worked in India. So I wanted to know what an educator does so that when I get to India, I could do the education myself selfishly because I would get information from each patient. I would know what the culture is. I would know what their lifestyles, their beliefs, their value systems. I didn't just want to be disconnected from them, telling them what drugs to take and then outsource to an educator. I needed to first know what, what's happening. So no in, in between, you know how like cut out the middleman. So I wanted to just directly know from my patients. So that gave me the lay of the land about what's going on in this country and whether it's family styles, cooking styles, beliefs, misunderstandings, myths, phobias. I spent about three years sort of accumulating knowledge on that and then finally started doing, you know, group classes, education. And since then, the practice, you know, there's a story there, but I've just made it a lifestyle first practice. Yeah. So talk about that uh, some more, the lifestyle first approach versus the uh, pharmaceutical first approach that I think is more <laughs> common here in the U.S. <laughs> exactly. So one of the beautiful sentences that stayed with me when I, so I took the CDE exam in, in the States, the Certified Diabetes Educator exam, so that I really knew what it means. And the textbook, just my jaw dropped at, there was like a penny drop moment, which was, it said, go to the patient empowerment model, not the patient compliance model. And what that means is, you know, the word compliance comes from like government is are you compliant? Are you fire safety compliance? That's where we heard here in this work. But it had inner, it had sort of jumped into the doctor-patient relationship where compliance on behalf of the patient was supposed to mean, are they taking their medication regularly? Are they doing what you say? And as a doctor, you've sort of worked your way up this sort of professional ladder where you somehow become top, top dog, right? You're this apparently, I'm not saying we are the smartest people in the room. 
but the world seems to portray that the doctors are the smartest people in the room because we have so many degrees and we take so many tests. Um, but I think we had some knowledge gaps. So the switch to patient empowerment was very interesting. I was like, huh, I like this. You know, I have always been fascinated with behavior change and mind-body medicine. And I was like, I like the ring to that. I don't want to be told what to do. I would rather as a human being that someone gave me my options, inform me of my choices, and then let me decide. It's just a human need. And I was like, well, everybody's as human as I am. So why would I not want that for them? I mean, maybe it'll work better. And this sort of stayed as a notion in the back of my head until I had this one specific interaction with the patient. And I think he was like my light bulb moment patient where he was sent to me with heavily uncontrolled diabetes. HbA1c was like above 11% in spite of, and normal should be, a non-diabetes level of HbA1c should be less than 5.7. Thank you. So what this means is, yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I figured you'd ask me, what, the, how do we make sense of the number? Appreciate that. And if you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you think a fasting glucose level should be below 100, we're talking about somebody having a 90-day average blood sugar in their bloodstream of about 400. That's I know, in spite I know that's of, bad. yeah, it's really bad, right? It's really bad. And he's sitting there talking to me normal, like he, he's calm, cool, he's stable. He looks like he could go walk out and go have a meeting and do everything normally. And this is in spite of him being compliant with four different oral diabetes medications. And my job, the, the doctor who sent him to me said, the it, it said it on the referral note, non-compliant. That was like his name, like you know, John Doe, like John non-compliant Doe. It was almost like that's who he is. Yeah, not good, right? And the man says, I'm not going to take insulin. And, and what's the endocrinologist's job? You know, we sort of are in diabetes. We're supposedly, you know, it's the highest level of training is we're the hormone doctors. Diabetes is a hormone imbalance. Insulin is the key hormone we're talking about. So my job was, as per my training, you know, I'm told, if you have an HbA1c above a certain number, like nine, in spite of multiple oral medications, you need to switch this person to insulin. So I tried that conversation and he was like, absolutely not. I've seen people go downhill once they start insulin. Nobody ever got better once they got on insulin. I'm not doing that. And I realized I can't make him come. come yeah. Good for him. Right? And he's like, yeah, good for him. And I'm sitting there stumped. He's like, I'm stuck now. What do I do? And I didn't want to get into combat with him. He was in my office. He wasn't there to irritate me or waste my time. He was there for guidance on his health. He could have been in a different location if he wanted to be sick. So I'm, the assumption is this man does not want to be sick. I need to find a way to work with him. And so then that bulb just went off about two things went off. You know, I think thankfully, because of having multiple inputs in my training, I had to go out of my way to get it, but I had it was patient empowerment was one thing that stayed. And another thing that was, as of that time, was only in the diabetes education books. It had not come into the American Diabetes Association or the clinical endocrinology guidelines, which was to say that reducing carbohydrate intake can reduce the need for medication and can bring the glucose levels down. This was like some secret sentence that was not front and center for doctors. And these ideas just sort of accumulated. Yeah, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to, I was going to, well, first of all, uh, you know, certainly want to hear the end of that story, but, you know, also <laughs> ask why, why is that, you know, why is this secret, you know, hidden from doctors and uh, wanted to hear kind of what your perspective is in the endocrinology community at large, both here in the U.S. and in India, um, you know, why therapeutic carbohydrate restriction uh, is not a accepted treatment paradigm. I think it's a tragic fact, you know, who, so then they're like, should we talk conspiracy theory? Should we talk con conflict of interest? Should we talk cognitive bias in the doctor's mind is, I know that it's common sense to tell the patient, fix your diet, fix your exercise. Type two diabetes is a lifestyle disease. And that's the thing that used to bug me. It used to bug me to no end. This paradox is we call it a lifestyle disease. And we also sit in conferences saying it's a chronic and progressive disease. And I'm like, those two things don't add up. You know, the missing link between those two sentences is if the person with diabetes does not change the lifestyle, then it's a chronic and progressive disease. These two things were separated from each other. I don't know by accident or what. And even today, you know, um, if you look for the American Diabetes Association guidelines about therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, it's in the fine print. It's not in the colorful algorithm about how to treat diabetes. And I just picked this algorithm apart with Tony Hampton, who's another SMHP provider in Chicago. And uh, on his podcast, he asked me, like, walk us through what you think needs to be improved in this treatment algorithm for diabetes. And one of the things I said there was, it's a, it's a pharmacotherapy. It's about prescription. It, it has the word on top, diet, lifestyle, exercise, weight loss. There's like one line there so that you're not legally not saying it. But the entire algorithm is dedicated to one-way traffic of if one medicine fails, add two, add three, add four. If the kidney is damaged, try these meds. If your heart's failing, give these meds. If you have cardiac coronary disease, go for these. And I'm like, wait, that's way too far ahead in the game. And, you know, just like you say, stay off my operating table. We're way too late if we're waiting to make prescription decisions based on once somebody's heart is involved with diabetes or kidney is involved. And the carbohydrate bit is in the same document. Every January, they publish this. And it's a very cryptic sentence. It's so hard to understand. You know how they say you should say things in a way that a 10-year-old should be able to understand? This sentence, let me try. It says, in people in whom um, achieve, what is it? Uncontrolled, yeah, yeah. In people not achieving glycemic targets. First of all, I'm already lost. Not achieving glycemic targets. That's saying something means the they're endocrinologist is lost. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm trying to piece this together. Like, what do you mean? Say it to me in English. That means your glucose is too high. Not achieving glycemic targets. Fine. That's the first part. And in whom achieving normal glucose levels with less medication is a priority. Oh my God. Say that simply. So here's a person who has uncontrolled diabetes who would like to have normal glucose levels with less medication. Right. Like, then it says that should be everyone, right? <laughs> I think that's everyone. Thank oh, yeah. you. You know, I think that's every single person, but that person is not represented on this colorful algorithm. It's in the fine print, which busy doctors probably don't read. Um, the sentence finishes with, in those people, a low-carb or a very low-carb uh, approach is a viable option. 
now there's evidence behind this and they've given you links and all that, but it's so hard to fish it out and run your career like that, run your practice based on that. It's just not easy. So I think doctors are missing. Mm -hmm. It it just, like I said, the, the implicit, um, uh, you know, uh, assumption there is that most people aren't going to want to control their diabetes with less medication. Uh, and that's what's really so, uh, you know, sad and shocking about the way that the ADA, you know, phrased that uh, in their guidelines. Um, and like you said, why isn't that at the top of the algorithm? That should be the default. And then if that's not working, okay, let's go to some medications. Oh, yeah. So many lives would be impacted if we used carbohydrate restriction as the first approach. And I just don't see that happening. In fact, you still have guidelines saying, and even in India, it's being published like this, that carbohydrates should be 55 to 60% of the meal. On what basis? And I've read documents that say you should do that to prevent ketosis. I'm like, on what basis? Why? So this is a bit technical. But just because somebody is using fat for fuel, so if you don't use carbohydrates for fuel, you're going to end up needing to burn fat for fuel. I thought most people don't want the extra body fat. Last I checked, right, is nobody wants to be walking around with that extra body fat. And yet we're saying, so when you burn fat for fuel, you're going to produce ketones. That's not the same as diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a very rare complication of diabetes. So all ketones are not ketoacidosis. And this is like a major educational gap here is nutritional ketosis or changing somebody's nutrition by reducing carbohydrates so that they burn fat and generate ketones is actually a healthy, helpful thing. The body was wired to do that. And yet you've got guidelines saying put 50 to 60% carbohydrates in the plate to prevent ketosis. And, you know, Maybe I need to get more famous so I can then rip these guidelines apart and 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 get into more trouble by by criticizing them more openly. But but, but this is what this is what we're facing right now. Well, I have yeah. Well, we of... definitely need that to happen. Um, maybe uh, go back a little bit. And at what point in your training or career did you kind of come to this realization that you know uh, we could be you know instructing patients to reduce their carbohydrates rather than just putting them on more and more medicine. Yeah. So that gentleman that I met in 2013 was the one who sort of gave me my light bulb moment was multiple ideas sort of came crashing together from theoretical knowledge in my IQ bank into doctor patient relationship in the room. This man is here for help. He's saying, no way am I taking insulin. And I had to come up with some new way of talking to him and connecting with him. And then it just clicked. I was like, oh, let's go through your diet recall. And it was, it was like, guess what? He was eating eight to 10 Indian flatbreads, like chapatis. They're about six inches. They're like tortillas, wheat, eight to 10 of those per meal. So we're talking 24, or maybe if he didn't have so many of them at lunch, let's say 15 to 20 of these tortilla type rotis, chapatis, Per day. So I was like, do you think you can reduce that and take more vegetables and more protein instead if you're hungry? Because he was doing that to satisfy his appetite. He wanted to feel full. And because carbohydrates are really not that filling, they keep you hungry. And this this much knowledge I have. 
I was like, can you reduce that and give more carb, give more protein and vegetables? And he was like, okay, I can do that. If you're saying that you won't force insulin on me, I'm going to do that. And I tweaked his tablets around a bit. I was very nervous because this was the first time I was breaking the law. According to me, I was like doing something outside of guidelines. I did not send him out with insulin. And I was like worried about him. I was like, is he going to get sick? And uh, he looked fine. He walked out. He came back a week later. His glucose levels had gotten better without me having pushed the insulin on him, just by him cutting his chapati count to half. And in my, in my interview with diet doctor, some people got mad at me. They're like, you're not talking about the rice eaters. I've done this again later on with rice eaters. Same thing is when, because India has either roti or rice as the predominant carbohydrate on the plate. And I've seen that when they cut that to half, the glucose levels drop drastically. And so then that became my negotiation tool. Every conversation, I was so excited by this finding. I was like, wow, this feels better. I just would not want to be on so much medication myself. If the person's getting better with less medication, there's no problem here. There's no conflict. And he was feeling better. Um, he, he looked absolutely clinically comfortable. So that's what we did. And, you know, this other sort of, again, we were told that if someone's failed on four tablets, that means that their pancreas is dead. It means that they have no more insulin production in the body. And that's why you need to give insulin. That was one of the arguments that we were using. And again, you know how sometimes you have data or knowledge in separate buckets in your brain and they don't talk to each other. So in type one diabetes, again, we treat type one diabetes. That's we're supposed to be the experts for managing that is very minute and precise insulin prescribing that we do. And one of the ways that we can confirm that this is type one diabetes is by a simple blood test. We do the C-peptide test and we know that this person's pancreas is definitely not making the right amount of insulin. You're insulin deficient and this person needs insulin to survive. But we were never doing that test in the type two population. We were just assuming that a standing, walking, talking, comfortable man with scary high glucose must have a non-working pancreas Therefore, I must give him insulin. But a person with type 1 who has a non-working pancreas is extremely sick. They're losing weight. They're getting into hospital. They are getting into ketoacidosis. So it's not the same process. It's medically a totally different thing. So this bulb sort of click is, oh, I don't think his pancreas is dead. I need to work with that working pancreas and work on lifestyle change. And that was like a big turnaround for me at that point in my head. So, so one of the things that I was fascinated by, I went to your website and I'm sorry, I don't remember what it's called, but we'll get that, um, uh, make sure that it, that you get to talk about it. Went to your website and, um, how, it was how you work in your clinic. And you said, one of the things it says is we don't do single visits and I, I'm, I drilled down. What's that all about? And it, it really made sense. Um, and then I'm, I'm lay, setting the table here because I want to want you to unfold this approach. And then you've got somebody on your staff who is um, a, a, a spiritual healer. I'm, I'm not saying yes. the words right, but you got it right. Combination of uh, we we do a program. I want you to talk about that because the way you described it was super cool. And you've also, you also talked about the spiritual 
I, I guess that's the best word for it, the spiritual side of things. And you have this, this person on your staff. Maybe those things are related. I don't know. But but it, it, I've never run into this particular combination of healing modalities and uh, 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 programs. And I think it sounds really interesting. I'd love to see something like that adopted here in America, if I understand it. So tell us about it. Sure. Let me. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for, for going through that. I would love to talk about that. So here I need to do a bit of a, a, a personal journey segue. And I think even, Phil, you had a sort of personal health awakening that triggered a big transformation in the way you see healthcare. Um, similarly to mine, in the sense that 2011, 2012, when we moved back from the U.S. to India, it was a big personal professional adjustment. I wouldn't say it was like the happiest two years of my life. It was kind of very, very stressful. Lots of adjusting and unexpected situations I had to adapt to. And I did not have enough coping tools. So I went through a very big stress patch and my hemoglobin A1C entered into the pre-diabetes range purely from stress, purely from stress. My food was the same. My lack of exercise was the same. Um, my sleep and et cetera were the same. The big difference was I was going through chronic daily 24-7 internal stress in my head. I just couldn't cope. And I really was about to hit rock bottom. And a friend of mine, just she'd been my old friend. I just didn't know that she was a spiritual teacher. And if you believe in the universe or you believe that there's something out there looking out for you, I think that was looking out for me, whether you call it God or you call it wisdom or consciousness or just whoever put the sun and moon in the sky, whatever that was, that same thing was looking out for me. And I ended up talking to her and she said, you're ready to learn some spiritual practices now. I was at such a wit's end, I would have done anything. So she said, you're ready to learn Reiki. And that's where my brand comes from is Reisan, is oh. the R-E-I of Reiki. Yeah, Reisan, R-E-I. My Reiki wife is a Reiki is... practitioner. I... Well, what do you know? Oh, I know, I know almost nothing, but I know that she's... <laughs> She's extremely gifted and an extraordinary healer. So I'm not completely ignorant about Reiki. Carry on. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what entered my life. And she said, you're ready for Reiki. And I, my joke now is, in hindsight, this was 10 years ago. I said, you know what? If you had told me that day that you're ready for monkey, I would have done monkey. You said Reiki, so I did Reiki. I was so, I was... I was like fully in surrender mode. I was like, tell me what I need to do. And so that's when my spiritual journey started. It changed me as a human being. It changed me as a person with my ability to see emotional pain on the other side of the table. And I think sometimes we get scared of the word spirituality. We think it means religion. We think it means God. And we don't need to make it that complex. For me, spirituality is knowing my self-care, knowing myself my emotions, my but what 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 matters to me, what triggers me. And if I become more and more aware of myself, I'm going to see similar reflections in the people outside. What I think are, you know, they're bringing problems in my life. Actually, we start seeing each other as reflections of each other. And the world would be such a different place, right? If we could all do this, it's very hard. It's extremely hard. Um, but I try. I really do try. I'm not, I'm not anywhere near Buddhahood. I'm very flawed and very, you know, I can be fragile and, and crazy sometimes, but it's a journey. 
And because I saw the power of it, I realized that talking to one person one day, changing their medicines and sending them off into the wild, never knowing if they're going to come back, right? So in, in India, especially, it's another awkward situation is outpatient medicine is not driven through insurance. It's out of pocket, self-pay. So if someone meets me in my practice and I change their medicines today, I might think reducing rice or chapatis is great. And I'll say, do you promise you'll reduce your carbs? Okay, here, I'm making all these medicine changes. Off you go, see me in two weeks. What if they never come back? I've now set them up for trouble. Is It's not safe. There's no medical supervision. And this actually happened. I had to get burned and learn this the hard way was I was operating out of the old-fashioned acute care model. See, healthcare became an official career track for people, especially once um, surgeries were invented, antibiotics were invented, acute medicine became very life-saving. Um, but when you're dealing with chronic medicine, it's not like a one-time visit, I save your life today. It's gotta be long-term. It's a life, if we talk lifestyle, right? And I, I have a sort of a, mantra for this is life is what happens to you every day and lifestyle is how you respond to it every day. It's not just one day. So I figured if I want to have a say in reducing people's medication, I need to be connected with them over a longer period of time so I can go deep with them into their nutrition, their sleep, their stress management slash spirituality, their exercise, their time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Only then can I do justice to walk them through this journey of better health with less medication? So it was on me to upskill myself in all of those verticals, read like crazy, geek out. I'm a professional geek, right? I'm a lifelong geek. I can study and learn. <laughs> and, and that's how the program only approach came. And what we've done now is we will do a single consult where we get to know each other because sometimes it's hard for someone to jump into a three-month commitment when they have no idea what you're talking about. They think you're crazy. So we do the one consult where we get to know their backstory. They get to know our philosophy. I won't change the medicines in that meeting. It's more like this is time for us to introduce each other. And then I lay out what's coming if they work with us over three to six months. So if, if I understand it, what you're, it starts with this model of which bucket of health problem do you fall in? Is this an acute problem or a chronic problem? If it's an acute problem, it's not you. They need to be seeing. I'm, I'm exactly. right so far, right? Exactly, exactly right. If it's a chronic problem, then it's not fixed with acute style care. It is addressed through an entirely different model of treatment. Exactly. So I had to design that. It doesn't that. sound and very complicated, but it and it sounds actually kind of blindingly obvious, but I don't know that I've ever heard anybody actually say it that way. Yeah. The truth is sometimes always staring at us in front of us, but we don't see it because we've yeah. got all these, again, cognitive biases on. We've got all the, so for example, if I look at the algorithms, right, it says avoid clinical inertia, reassess every three months. That implies that you're seeing the person once every three months. But am I not delusional if I think that just because I write something on a piece of paper today, the human being is going to walk out that door and do this for 90 days? Is that even reality? But we say it so often. And then when they don't do it, we say they're non-compliant. You know, and so I have been a bit 
um, investigative about this. Like I've been sort of sniffing around in the in the subtext for things. I'll give you another example. There was a document that came out by the EASD and ADA, so the European Association for the Science of Diabetes or Study of Diabetes. It's a European body and the American body, and they came out with this document called Patient-Centered Approach. Now, that had already started appealing to me. I was like, yeah, let me read this document, okay? So I go read the document, and they had another colorful chart. And the colorful chart, the old version of it, had decision buckets for doctors, right? Busy doctor has to decide this person in front of me, how should I treat them from a patient-centered approach? And one of the deciding, you know, yes, no, I, I'm going to pause, right? I'm going to pause just a minute. As as yeah. the patient, the, con- the, the, the concept of there's something other than a patient-centered approach exactly. just blows my mind. Why, You're why right. Would, why would we have to say that? I would assume <laughs> as the patient, you're centered on me. Okay, sorry. Exactly. I, I had to get that. Exactly. Out. You're exactly right, Jack. <laughs> the fact that there has to be a document from these international societies getting doctors to think about, uh, to consider it as an option to have a patient-centered approach instead of it being the default oh. is kind of insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. And that's what I'm telling you. We don't even notice what's going on is we're all going insane. And... um so, so I want to, I'm so many thoughts are coming in my head. I'm going to try and stay organized is, is yes, patient centered. There's another document that's come out that says language matters. Okay. There's a doc, there's a paper. Okay. So we need papers like this to remind ourselves, oh yeah, how I talk to the patient matters. I need to be reminded of that. Okay. <laughs> this is what's happening to the world. So I'll come back to that paper a second, but let's come back to this one. So here's these little colorful triangles, okay? So it's like a triangle. It's like a right angle triangle. So there's got this vertical line. It's got this straight line. And then it's got a triangle slope. So on the left side, it says you should aim for tighter glucose targets. And on the right side, it says aim for milder, or I would say less stringent targets. Now, the decision tree they've shown you is who should be pushed for a more normal HbA1c. So if normal is below 5.7, or if you want to trade, it takes seven, which is you know above that you should be prescribing, below that you can try lifestyle. So whatever number you take, push for tighter control in the following types of patients, okay? Here's where it gets tricky. One of the top ones over there was, it's not in the document anymore. They've taken it out because somebody fought. It used to be there. It said, patient motivation and expected adherence efforts. So if the doctor thinks this person looks like a motivated, adherent kind of person, I will work with them on getting their HbA1c closer to normal. There were so many things wrong with this. Do you, what's the way? How do you diagnose? Can you look at people and say that? How do you assess this? What's your measurement tool? It just, uh. yeah, you know, when, and when you... <laughs> You say it out loud, you know, we're kind of it here laughing cr- about it, but it, it just sounds so crazy. It's tragic. And that, that there would be a bucket of patients who you shouldn't try and control as well. Like, let them be more sick, you know. Um, you yeah, know, because but, because they don't care. Right. Yeah. Well, they don't care. And, um, you know, of course, I, I mean, you're you're well familiar with, you know, the trials on 
um, you know, uh, more restrictive glucose control versus less restrictive. And, and, you know, the concern yes. always being that if we try and get these patients to, you know, normal blood sugar levels, um, you know, that we could end up harming them by doing that. Right. And so, you know, there, there have been trials that have shown that it's dangerous to, you know, tell a type two diabetic that their A1C should be normal, less than 5.7. So I can comment on that. Those were the afford and the advanced trials, and they saw worse cardiac outcomes in the groups that were pushed. These papers came out during my fellowship time, so we had to tear these apart. Um, and the accord and the advanced trials, they actually had to stop one of those trials prematurely because too many people were dying in the intensive intensive arm where you're pushing the A1C lower and lower. But there's a very big, bold print there is they were pushing the HbA1c lower and lower through prescriptions, not through lifestyle. So if I'm gonna push the sugar lower, I'm not giving it to you naturally. That's when the deaths were happening. We don't have a trial that shows that lifestyle getting A1c to 5.7 and below versus medicated. We don't have that trial. We have the 2002 DPP trial, which is a beautiful study. I can come to that. But I need to finish the story about what happened to this nasty. What do you get? To, you get you you get to diagnose people's motivation based on their facial expressions or based on their name or I don't know how you do that. And it was in there is that's how you can decide. And there were other things like age or lots of comorbidities or you know other things. And then of course there was pushback from the I think I don't know I wish I was in that room when they fought about this you know to hear what the two sides were saying to each other. I'm sure there was a group of um, coaches, psychologists, diabetes psychologists, educators who were saying this is totally blatantly wrong. You cannot do it this way. And so what came a few years down the road, that, that chart got modified. Now the way it reads is they show you modifiable patient characteristics, not modifiable or potentially modifiable. And in potentially modifiable, they've put patient motivation, patient level of adherence. It's a potentially modifiable feature, which means somebody has to intervene and help increase the levels of motivation of this person. And that's where this beautiful world of, I think, motivational interviewing comes in, which is another soft skill I got trained in, which is when you see someone not doing what they know is good for them, how do you work with them? Like whether you say it's addiction or you say it's eating lots of sugar when you know you have diabetes, these look like self-harmful behaviors. They're the opposite of self-care on the surface, it looks like. But they have reasons why they're doing it. And they're not doing it for suicidal reasons. They're doing it for self-soothing. And that's their version of self-care. So to sort of drill into that soft space. Um, you know, so I've taken a really long road to try and explain to you sort of why we do this in a program-only approach. What is the meaning of self-care? You know, how I sort of got to what spirituality means. You know, I, I've kind of jumped around a bunch of different topics. but I hope I'm trying to answer your question. This is, is great. This what what this says to me, the way you're answering it is this is this is a physician who has spent a lot of time thinking about not just the surface problem, but the problem that led to the surface problem and the problems that led to the problems that led to the surface problems. And <laughs> and have, have you've gone layers down so that you can actually be a healer rather than the retail arm of the pharmaceutical industry. Yes. So, Thank you for rephrasing. Yeah, you rephrased it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of healers, not so much a fan of 
drug salesman. So yes, and we had to rebrand ourselves. So our tagline is where healthcare meets healing, because we think that there's a journey here and we need to meet them somewhere in their journey. They want to heal. Um, and we get they get to define what that looks like for them and healthcare, not sickness care, you know, not illness or disease care, but healthcare. That's why we got in here. We didn't get in here to prescribe them the cheapest drug or to, you know, avoid the, the side effect kind of drug. We were here to help our patients heal. Mm. Uh, we were not here to avoid flag getting flagged by insurance companies or making our hospital targets and revenue targets. That's not why we entered healthcare. Um, so, yes, healing was the reason we came in. I, I feel like I may have interrupted you and you didn't get to finish your story. I don't remember either what I was okay. thinking well, about. You're apologizing yeah. for, for, for how um, widely you're, you're setting the context to answer my question about the spiritual side of healing and the programmatic work. Um, yes. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the language matters document, you know, I can come to that is, oh, we need a document to remind us that how you talk to the patient matters is, are you talking to them with blame? Are you talking to them with you should, you have to, you need to, you're expected to, you're supposed to. That's coming from the compliance model. In fact, we shouldn't be using the word diabetic. We should say person with diabetes. We shouldn't say alcoholic, right? We're, it's like you're putting it in their name that you are this person, it's part of your identity. So if I'm talking lifestyle change, I'm talking habit change, I'm talking behavior change. So I love this book by James Clear, it's called Atomic Habits, such a good book. And it talks about what's the most long lasting way of changing habits that don't help you or adding habits that would help you. And I can give you an example here, so I'm not too abstract, is he describes three rings of change. Okay, it's in his book. There's the central, the middle, and the outermost ring. Most of us try to change habits based on an outcome we're looking for. So I'm going to go on a diet because I want to lose weight. So the outermost ring is the outcome I'm seeking, the, out, the result, which is I want weight loss. Yeah. And we usually typically go outside in, which is I want weight loss. So I will change the middle ring, which is process is to get that result. I'm going to change my process by going on a diet. That's the middle ring. The inner ring is who I am, my identity, my values, my beliefs. I am a sweet, I have a sweet tooth. I crave sugar. I am somebody who cannot resist junk food. That's my name. That's my identity. So when you go outside in, changing process because of a result-driven approach, you, you hit a dead end or a roadblock or a conflict in terms of sustainability because now your goals and desires are not matching your self-talk, what you're saying about yourself. It's clashing. So the way to change that is to go inside out is first examine your identity is what do you say about yourself? And we let people say this all the time. It's, oh, I have a sweet tooth. In India, they've taken it one step further. They're like, I have 32 sweet teeth. I was like, yeah, really? Do you want to continue lying like that to yourself? Language matters. So words matter. Words have power. If, if you speak self in a self-limiting way, that says a lot about your beliefs. You know, I am an emotional eater. That's saying that's my identity at the core. And then try putting yourself on a diet when you haven't changed who you are. It's not going to last. So you know, it reminds a change. Me, mm -hmm. 
Well, there's a yeah. Go ahead. There is a uh, the in the book of Proverbs. There's this this proverb that says, uh, "Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks," and um, mm -hmm. if you want to know what how you really do perceive yourself, because what you, what we're talking about is is if your identity hasn't changed then then the the outcome you desire is the outcome we desire the outco our outcomes are a natural outflow of our identities so what you're saying is that this this these words uh that we speak about ourselves are the, are expressions of our identity how we perceive ourselves and until we perceive our own identity differently we're not going to get last long lasting change in our outcomes, right? Am I exactly, 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 exactly? And I love how and you're, you know, and this you're, is what I love you're about an endocrinologist working with people from this standpoint. How awesome yes. is that? I love it. I can't do it any other way anymore. I just can't, you know. And I'm going to stay with the thread you gave me just now. It was so beautiful. Um, say that again. The heart. Out of the fullness speaks. of the hearts, out of the full, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is so beautiful. I love that, and that's what I love about truth, right? Truth, when it comes out from a new spot, it's the same truth. You know, it doesn't it doesn't sound different. It sounds the same. I've never heard that particular truth before, but truth recognizes truth the way you yep. heard it in what I said, yep. and you connected the dots and you saw truth, right? So let me go more deep. Since you've asked for the spiritual angle of this right now, I'm going to go with that. And since you, your wife is a Reiki healer and that just happened by, by accident, right? Is, um, is let's go one step deeper with the emotional eating or I have a sweet tooth statement. And let me now bring in a spiritual. How can that become spiritual? Is when you say that about, when somebody says that about themselves as a belief or identity, how do they feel? How does that sentence make them feel? Thoughts lead to feelings, lead to actions. If you ask any psychologist who's doing work with you, they'll say thoughts, thought patterns lead to emotions, lead to actions. That become You do that again and again, it becomes habits. You do that again and again, it either becomes health or disease, right? So like you said, go one step lower, deeper, deeper, deeper. If I'm saying first principles, What's at the core of all this? So if I say I have a sweet tooth, I can't resist, I'm emotionally weak. People have said sugar is my weakness, right? Let's use that one. Or, or French fries are my weakness. What does that thought make me feel about myself? Up or down? Probably down, right? Is I can't trust myself. I don't have willpower. I've got that one a lot. I lack willpower. Um, low self-confidence, if I get more deeper with it, low self-esteem, I'm not worth it, low, low self-worth. Now we've gone big time into spiritual zone. Wow. Is when, Yeah, big time. <laughs> and, you, and you keep doing that, and then you come to the diabetes doctor, and I just give you diabetes medications, We're never, then it's chronic and progressive. We're never going to win like that. And, and so that's why... You know what? That's why I have somebody spiritual who's an actual therapist on my team, because guess what they find? They do these things and it goes into inner child work, uh, inner child work. 
And all along, the patient thought they were just coming to you to get a prescription, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and you know, this is that this is one of the disservices that you know we have been, you know, doing. Uh, you know, we have been really imposing on our patients um, in the traditional healthcare system by telling them that they can't get better. The uh-huh. only option is take more medicine, take more medicine. It's going to get worse over time. We're going to do our best to manage it. And that's, that's basically our approach to chronic disease um, in, the, in the healthcare system. And instead yeah. of working with patients to empower them to understand how they can overcome. And, you know, that, that's really what gives me such hope um, uh, about the future is more and more practitioners like yourself, uh, you know, all of the practitioners that I meet now at the at the meetings, uh, you know, that I talk to in all the different uh, arenas um, who are giving their patients this hope back that we can, yeah. that they can, you know, improve and, and uh, reverse these diseases. Yeah. And, you know, I think education is a huge part here for the healthcare providers because like SMHP, for example, now has a Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners now has educational content, Nutrition Network from South Africa. They have educational content because I was not trained in how to use nutrition to heal, sleep management to heal, stress management to heal, exercise to heal, fasting to heal. Five giant treatment buckets were not taught to me. I was only taught the, taught the prescribing bit of it. And now I know all these things and I'm seeing them work in practice. And, you know, every, every person will take their time. They may invest heavily on the nutrition bucket. Maybe spiritual is not something they need to do right away. They're not ready for it. It's not my decision who needs to go how deep in which bucket. We need to give people the menu of options. We need to give healthcare workers training in all of these options so that they have more tools. Right now, even if a doctor wants to help the patient heal, they don't have the tools. They just will be at a loss is, okay, if not medicine, how do I help this person? I don't know. I just don't have the skills. Bill, comment on that. That, 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 What went through my head was, oh my God, I've never thought about what it must be like to be a, a, a physician who's gone through however many gazillion years of training you've been through with the idea that you're going to be a you're going to be able to express your healing desires if you get this education and then be standing in front of a person that needs healing and you just don't know what to do what's that like well i i think that's a large uh contributor to this you know physician burnout problem that we're seeing I think this is why physicians are getting so frustrated. And, you know, we blame the the technology and the administrative burdens and all of that. And, and yes, those are all issues. Um, but at the core of it, I think, you know, every doctor I know, um, their motivation for going into medicine was to help people, to, to help people get better. And when you spend your whole career seeing your patients not getting better, they're just getting worse, um, and you don't know what to do about it, it's very demoralizing. And, um, you know, we've had so many physicians on this program at this point who have talked about, you know, 
what it was like when they were able to make that change. And now they can see their patients getting better. And, um, you know, you see how enthusiastic Roshani is about her practice (laughs) and the people that she works with because they're getting great results and they're getting better. And she's actually helping people, which is what she went into medicine for in the first place. And, and, you know, um, I, I, you know, my experience maybe wasn't as dramatic because, you know, I did get to see patients get better. You know, I did the surgery on them and yeah, they would get better from the surgery in the short term. And I didn't really pay attention to the fact that over the long term, they weren't really getting better. You were um, operating it. You were, it was an acute situation. Yeah, it was an point. acute situation. Yeah. And so. your acute tools were able to resolve an acute situation. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. But oh um, yeah, you know, so uh, that that's why it is so powerful. And, and, you know, we had Doug on a few weeks ago, Doug Reynolds from the, uh, uh, Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners and uh, the work that that organization is doing, the Nutrition Network, like you talked about, other other projects that are underway um, to really help the practitioners as well as helping the patients. Oh, man, my brain is spinning. Okay, okay, Rashani. Um, what do we do now? uh to to infect the rest of medicine with this particular um virus that you've contracted and and are, are actually helping people what do we do how do we make it happen yeah. what are you doing what can we do to help thank you yeah so now that you've sort of tasted the 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 sweet you know spot you want to share it with everybody, right? Is you want to spread the word. You want to make everybody know about this. So my effort to that is to write a book, which we'll publish in the summer. Actually, Phil, you really helped me. So I, I'm confident now that it's going to come out in summer of 2024. And um, it is a book about the, I'm, the working title <clears throat> is Turnaround Diabetes. And it's a book on lifestyle change. I don't know if that'll be the final title. We'll still hash it out. But the book is all about lifestyle change to have better diabetes experiences with less medication, whether it's type two or type one. And obviously, people need to use that book with their medical doctor supervising what they try to do. Uh, It doesn't replace what they should see their healthcare providers for, but it is meant to be empowering that people can think about their health with real steps. What should they do step by step? And from that, I think I expect there's going to be another book that needs to come out or a course or something for healthcare providers to train them so they can do this. And, you know, I, I'm in, I'm 46. I've spent many, many years acquiring all these tools. I don't want another physician to have to spend 15 years each trying to get this knowledge. We need to speed that timeline up and compress it so that do a course, do a book, start, get mentorship from people like Phil and I who are doing this, you know, there's a community of doctors doing this now. We exponentially need to grow this, empower the people, empower the treating doctors, the, the you know, um, educators, the nurses, the dietitians, nutritionists, everybody. It can happen in one generation, I think. And so in my head, we need, we've got teenagers coming down with two type two diabetes. I've got little children at the age of 10 with fatty liver. We've got a major, major problem. So it's only through knowledge. If we're not going to prescribe our way out of this, then we need to educate our way out of this. All right. 
So that's a, I guess that's a, there's a, I hear a comma there. I don't really want to put a period there, Phil, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I would just say it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing what Roshani is doing. That's why I was so uh, enthused about having her on. And uh, I, we, you know, look forward to the book. But in the meantime, if people are interested on uh, to work with you, how can they do that? Yes. So, you know, I'm now working globally telemedicine. I have a virtual practice. So uh, I work with people all over India, all over the world. Um, we do the one-time consult. People get to see what we're about. We get to see their entire backstory and see what they're looking for. And if it's a match, then we go ahead. We work three to six months together. So I'm available. My website is raceonhealth.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. YouTube, you know, try social media as a whole career in itself, trying to make content. Um, (laughs) So I'm focusing on the book for now. I'm hoping, (laughs) yeah, I'm just hoping the book will start this. And really, I have a lot of ambition for this book. I want this book to, like you said, infect everybody. Um, There's every household now. It's like one degree of separation. Everybody knows somebody impacted by diabetes or lifestyle disease or insulin resistance related disease. It's in every home. It's very, very scary. Um, so I think this is the only way out. And if we help each other, I think it will be better. All right. Well, that's race on health, R E I S A A N health.com. We'll make sure that shows up in the show notes and all the other ways to, uh, contact you. Uh, Roshani, I thank you. Seems insufficient. Um, you have filled me with hope that there are, that there's at least a handful of doctors who understand that physical health is intimately intertwined with our soul, our spirit, our experience, and are doing something about it. It never occurred to me there might be somebody who actually would do that, but thank God there is. All right. Well, I guess uh, I guess we'll put a pin in it for tonight. Uh, Bill, any closing words? Uh, no, just uh, I echo your sentiments and uh, look forward to all the uh, great work. Um, look forward to the book, certainly, and can't wait to uh, see what the future holds uh, for all of us who have uh, been enlightened. I would say all of us practitioners and. Um, how that mind virus is spreading uh, to our colleagues. That's fantastic. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jack, for having me on. Uh, Roshani, keep us keep us up to date on uh, the progress with the book. Uh, we'll want to know about it, and uh, we'll help spread the word. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. For Dr. Roshani Sangani, Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heald. This has been the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com dot com slash talk.